Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Uh, so delighted to be with you here with my colleagues from the Gantt Chapel. We are taping this on Wednesday morning, September 27th, and wishing you both a Shabbat Shalom and a Chag Sameach. Um, of course, Elias is not with us uh, this morning because his beloved mother passed away in Buenos Aires today on Wednesday, and he is flying out today, and he's going to be with his family in Argentina for some time for his mother's burial and for the Shiva, and we're just sending Elias and his whole family so much love and praying that his mother's memory should be for a deep blessing. Um, last night, I want to I frame our talk today by telling you about a play you have to see. Uh, it's at the Huntington Theater, um, and it's uh, called A Prayer for the French Republic. And uh, Shira told me uh, yesterday, the day after Yom Kippur, we're going to see a play. I'm like, oh, okay, uh, fine. <laughs> and on the way there, I said, what's the play about? She said, it's about five generations of anti-Semitism in France. It's about uh, Jews in France dying of the Holocaust and what happens to their children. And I'm like, oh my God, do I need to see that after Yom Kippur? Well, it is the most powerful play. Um, it's because it's, you know, it's the generation of Vichy France where there is uh, French Jews are deported, etc., cetera, and, uh, and, and, and killed in, in the camps. And then it's about their children and grandchildren. Um, when, and you see uh, the dramas of, of a kid who wants to wear a kippah and he keeps coming home from walking on the streets of his, of his home in, in Paris and, and he's beat up by mobs of kids for wearing a kippah and his mother's begging him to wear a baseball cap and he won't wear a baseball cap, he'll only wear a kippah. So uh, the first level of, of, of anxiety about this play is about uh, the sadness of, of anti-Semitism in France and in Europe in general. But then there's a deeper level of, anti of, of depression and worry, which is what links us to our topic today, which is about pessimism and does it have a place, is that the, the and I'm not going to do a spoiler alert, but see this play, it's a really important play. I did not want to see it, so glad I did. Totally compelling play. Half a Temple Manual was there, by the way, last night. Um, the drama of the play and the suspense and the mystery and the plot engine is, well, this family that's French, 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 French for generations, I mean, French, 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 Paris, Paris, Paris for generations, they don't know anybody in Israel, they don't speak Hebrew, they have no real connection to Israel, are they going to run away to Israel? And I'm not going to tell you what happens to this particular family, but uh, if you've been in Israel recently and you go to Jerusalem and you go to any cafe, what you hear spoken is French. And so French Jews in droves are actually going to Israel because it's unsafe for Jews in France. And that's the drama of this play. But then I had the second level of depression and of anxiety, which is Israel is so, it feels like such a troubled place now. Um, it's like a bit bad enough that you have to leave France, leave your home, leave the place that you love, leave a prayer for the French Republic to go run to Israel because you're concerned about safety. And then the second level of concern is, you know, we're recording this during the week of Yom Kippur. We had Yom Kippur on Sunday night and Monday. And, of course, there's all these stories about uh, Jews in Tel Aviv trying to daven on Yom Kippur and being heard at and gist at and, and, and spit at and bile and venom that's directed against them by Jews. And that's Israel today. I mean, that made national news. That made international news. 
And so the question that we want to talk about is what do you do with that? What do you do with that negative energy? Like if you, if you are alive to the world, that's, that's our world. And of course, there's all these other issues. We're worried about democracy here, et cetera, et cetera. So here's what I want you to think about. Think about what is it that worries you and that has you anxious, okay? And in the Daniel Hartman podcast for the end of 5783, he had these magical words. I don't do pessimism. I don't do pessimism. And so Daniel Hartman knows Israel as, you know, better than any of us ever could. And Daniel Hartman knows the hatred and the deep brokenness and deep dysfunction and deep division from which Jews spitting at other Jews who are trying to daven on Yom Kippur comes from. And his response is, I don't do pessimism. So what I want to talk about is, is that a legitimate Jewish position? Like, do our sources support that? And then, um, if you're actually feeling pessimistic, but you want to take the Daniel Hartman approach, I don't do pessimism, how do you be in dialogue with yourself so that you move away from the pessimism which you might feel to a better place, to a brighter place, to a happier place? That's our topic for today. So let's thank God for the gift of learning Torah together. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher kidishanu l'mitzatah v'tzivanu v'asok b'divrei Torah. Baharad na Adonai Eloheinu et divrei Torahtcha b'finu v'fi amcha b'it Yisrael. Beniyah anachnu v'tzatzeinu v'tzatzei amcha b'it Yisrael. Kulonu yodei shamecha l'omdei Torahtcha l'ishma. Baruch atah Adonai hamelamei Torah l'amo Yisrael. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam. So, the premise here is that you're feeling something in your kishka. You're feeling something in your pit of your stomach. You've got a pit in your stomach. You've got a negative energy pit, and you are kind of wrestling with succumbing to pessimism, right? Um, you only need a teaching, I don't do pessimism, if there's a lot of pessimism in the air. If, you don't, if there's not a lot of pessimism in the air, you don't need the teaching, I don't do pessimism. It's only if there's a grounds for pessimism that Daniel's teaching, I don't do pessimism, is relevant. So here's our, here's our question. We have, kish, we have something in our gut. We, we have anxiety. We have negative energy, a pit in our stomach. And we're going to look at three texts that are anti-pessimism texts, three texts that are hope and optimism texts. And they all take place, all these texts, take place during incredibly challenged circumstances. So the first one is going to be um, a, a mother and her young son. This is Hagar and Ishmael. We encountered it on day one of Rosh Hashanah. Um, it's hot. It's the desert. There's not enough water. He's dying of thirst, and she's weeping. And the message of that is don't succumb to pessimism. The second text is Jeremiah in, a, in the 586 area uh, where, number one, he's in jail, imprisoned by the king, and number two, the Babylonians are coming, and the, it, people are going to be exiled. So this is kind of double pessimistic t terrain. And yet, he's commanded by God to buy real estate in, in Anatot. And then the third text is a famous uh, text from Nehemiah chapter 8. The Jews come back after exile, and it's ruins, and they come back to destruction, and everything is hell in a handbasket. And it happens to be Rosh Hashanah. And they're doing Rosh Hashanah in ruins. Rosh Hashanah in ruins. And Nehemiah chapter 8 says, don't be sad. And of course, you only say, don't be sad when everybody's sad. And don't be weeping. You only say that when people are crying. And it goes on to say, you have to be happy because our, our strength 
is in happiness. Um, and so we're going to look at each of those. What do those texts tell us about what to do with our, the anxiety that we're carrying around? So, Elisa, would you pick up? We're going to start with the Hagar text. Um, this is a real quick text. Uh, pages one and two of the handout. If you can just start reading with verse 14, early next morning. Early next morning, Abraham took some bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He placed them over her shoulder together with the child and sent her away. And she wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water was gone from the skin, she left the child under one of the bushes and went and sat down at a distance, a bow shot away, for she thought, let me not look on as the child dies. And sitting thus afar, she burst into tears. So just pause. This feels like as desperate as desperate can be that this is a mother who feels that her son is going to die and there is nothing she can do about it. Okay, hard to imagine more pessimism than that. Okay, keep going. God heard the cry of the boy and an angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heeded the cry of the boy where he is. Come, lift up the boy and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and let the boy drink. And keep going just to end it, yeah. God was with the boy, and he grew up. He dwelt in the wilderness and became a bowman. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Great. So Ishmael is, feels like he's at death's edge, feels like Hagar's mother is at desperation's edge, weeping away. And we know even in this short little text, he lives happily ever after. He grows up, he gets past this bad incident, he grows up, he gets married, he goes on to have a life. What's the lesson of this story? And what does it say to us uh, in our current day of worry? So we turn this and turn this text every year. And um, one of the things that has been most profound for me is the rabbinic insistence that the well was there. Um, kind of in the same way that there's a rabbinic insistence that the ram was there the whole time, that when we are so stuck in our pain and our grief, we sometimes can't see the possibilities that are right there in front of us. And I, I love that reading, particularly because God just opens her eyes and she's able to see that well that's there um, sort of shaking her out of that place of what you're calling this morning pessimism, I would call grief, terror, right. uh, you know, existential horror um, that she's in, and she's able then to see beyond that moment. And one of the dangers of pessimism, as you're calling it, is it, it blocks our vision from seeing other possibilities. Right, so it's, it's, like it's a practical argument against it, right? When you are crying, when you're self-pitying, when you're in a state of deep sorrow, you don't, you're not asking the question, what can I do next? You're asking, why me? Not what can I do next? And therefore, you don't see the water that's there. And, and I just I also want to frame that by saying that it's profoundly appropriate for Hagar to be where she is. So there's nothing wrong or, or um, in any way unusual about Hagar being in that situation. That's very human, and in fact, may be a place we not only do get to, but may even need to get to at certain points. And yet, if we get stuck there, we limit ourselves. I was gonna, I had a totally different read, which is that her tears actually unlock the well. Like her, 
it's her crying and her letting out all the emotions of being exiled and banished and having this man who formerly was her partner and formerly was her support and formerly was in it with her, parenting with her, kicking her out. It's when she can cry and release all that emotion that she has access to God and that she has access to vision. So I think there's a difference between being pessimistic and feeling your feelings. And I think this is a, this is a, a story about the importance of feeling your feelings, processing your feelings, and, and going through that to get to the other side, not just, right, you don't, you don't get stuck there, but you also can't avoid, it's not like, you can't just be there and be like, well, I'm just going to look around and hope God provides something. Like, you actually have to be in that space of despair and, and acknowledge that, like, there are desperate moments in life. And, and you work your way through it. Yeah, and you're naming an ism that we haven't yet named, which is, I think, really important, realism, right? Mm -hmm. Understanding right. what is in front of you. So what is, again, we're, we're filming this uh, two days after Yom Kippur, I mean, all of us deeply, deeply, deeply love Israel, but oh my God, Jews spitting at Jews for praying in Tel Aviv is kind of about as heartbreaking as it gets. Like you think about, like you expect that Jews might get jeered at if they're davening, you know, in Europe. Europe's a graveyard for Jews, but they're on Dizengoff Street and getting and getting jeered at and spit at, etc. So how do you, if you think about the the prism of of Ishmael and Hagar? working your way through the feelings and then, and then opening your eyes to see the well. How does that connect with the very troubled reality of the cold civil war in Israel today? I just, I want to contextualize because Jews spitting at Jews has been happening for years at the wall. Um, for women particularly, like I remember going to Davin at the wall when I was studying in Israel and people were throwing hot coffee and the, the difference was that it was directed at liberal Jews, not at Orthodox Jews. And so I think that it feels like, it, and, and this is an interesting question, like, is this moment an intensely different moment or are we just seeing it differently? Is the same thing with Hagar, right? Is her reality different or does she just see it differently? And I think that when we need to, we need to grapple with the harsh reality that is in that it's really broken, but it's been really broken. It's been really broken for a long time. It's been a long time that we haven't been able to pray safely. It's been a long time, frankly, that, that there's been a lot of just disregard for and hatred towards Jews for the way that they observe Judaism from other Jews. Um, but I think that we have the two steps. One is the feeling step of like really embracing the brokenness it is. And we haven't, I don't think up until this point, a lot of people have felt that we've kind of just, especially liberal Jews, we've internalized that like, oh yeah, it makes sense for Orthodox Jews to throw coffee at us and spit at us because we're not doing things the way they think we should do it. So like, okay, and it's okay that they're not allowing us to have the plaza. It's okay that, right, we've just kind of internalized that. And it's now time for us to be like, no, this is really broken. Interesting that it had to be towards Jews who practice differently than us than us. And then the next step is like, okay, so then where are we looking for solutions? Well, I, I find that such an important observation, Aliza, because we're coming into the holidays where we say in our prayers, right? Like because of our sins, we were exiled from our land. And right. it's a trope that when we encounter that in, in our prayers, and Dan, I'd, I'd turn to you, is, is so uncomfortable, for us, right? The idea that we are taking upon ourselves the responsibility for something that was an external force acting upon us, and yet there is some way in which when you do not come together, when you can't find 
a place where we can see each other in the place where we are right. that we fail to be able to lift each other up. Yeah. I, I think um, I think a couple of things. First of all, you know, interesting interesting that many of us see Dereem now have an alternate text uh, in, in the Musaf Amidah for that, so we, we kind of avoid thinking about that. Um, By you are saying avoid thinking about yes, exactly. because of our sins. Because we were of exalted. our sins, yes. Yeah. So Although it's have, perhaps a very helpful reminder, maybe more helpful than ever now yes. to be thinking about that. And the other thing is, um, I, uh, picking up at this general conversation, I think that um, both Michelle and Melissa are really, really hitting the nail on the head by pointing to the fact that pessimism, as you, as we're um, thinking about it, is a um, is a step towards um, towards being optimistic. So we sometimes we need to reach we need to reach a point where we're where uh, we become pessimistic. But then that's actually um, we, if we we can't get mired there, and I think our tradition teaches us that we can't get mired there because you know we we get with with, with Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and then we step into Sukkot, and one of the texts uh, that we chant from the Torah is Vahayita Achsameach. So even though we are reminded of our um, of the fact that we are that we still have sins to atone for on a daily yeah. basis, we are commanded to be joyful. So yeah, even even in our hardest times. Yeah, let, let me put on a. We'll come back to the text of Jeremiah in jail because you talk about the command to be happy. So I'm going to have you read something, Dan. This is Nehemiah uh, chapter eight, famous chapter, uh, and it's going to be in your packets on page eight uh, on your packets. Um, what do you, how do you say to yourself, be happy when in fact you're worried and troubled? Like, be sunny, no clouds. Be sunny, no rain. Be sunny, no inclement weather. Be sunny, no winds. Just be nice, perfect 73 degrees, clear skies. If it's not, how do you, and, and that's what this chapter is because the uh, people come back to returnees from exile, they're, they're not at the imbal. They're not at the King David. They're not at a rebuilt Jerusalem. They're in ruins. They're in ruins. And it's Rosh Hashanah. So how do you do Rosh Hashanah ruins? How does that work? Uh, so Dan, pick up on page 8. And my question is, what does this say to our own heart? And is it, is it feasible, this advice? This day is holy to the Lord. So this is uh, Ezra the priest um, uh, says the following. So pick it up, Dan, with, with page 8. This day. Um, this day. I don't see where we are. It's the underlying part, Dan. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, this day is, is holy to the Lord your God. You must not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping, and they listened to the words of the teaching. Yeah, so let's just pause there. I want to go slow here. Um, the people are crying. And the leader of the community, Ezra, and they're crying, by the way, for good reason. Mm. You know, they're not crying for inconsequential reasons. They're crying because it's, 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 it's so, oh, my God, what do we do here? We're in ruins. And... And this, he says, this day is holy to the Lord your God. You must not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping as they listened to the words of the teaching. Um, what do you think about, Eliza, what do you think about that? Um, don't, feel, don't feel what you're feeling. You must not feel what you're feeling. Michelle, stop feeling what you're feeling. You must not. Don't feel. What is that? My least favorite commandment. <laughs> <laughs> 
that's like the quickest way to get on my bad side is like, tell me not to feel something. I'm like, excuse me. Right. I'm going to feel that. No, but it's like such that's a... That's why I turned to you. Yes, I, I appreciate that. I know you that. after all these years. So... <laughs> but it's like, it's such an interesting... The other question that comes up for me is like, why? Why is it so important for him in that moment? Because I think that we we access such deeper places through our feelings. So it's just like to just cut that part of ourselves off to dive in from the neck up just like doesn't make sense to me. But I actually think it's the opposite, right? I actually, it's not a should, you can't, you, you don't, you won't. It, it actually is a, you are seeing an end here. You're coming into this space on this sacred day and what you're seeing before you is an end. But actually, what is happening in this moment, you are the embodiment of the beginning. Mm. And if you can find that in yourself, you can find consolation, joy, and celebration. Yeah. So here, Why doesn't he say that? Yeah. So here's what, okay, so here's what happens next. So the people are weeping, and Ezra and Nehemiah are going to say, hey, 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 this isn't the end, this is the beginning. And they're saying, don't you tell me what to feel. I feel what I feel. I'm feeling broken. I'm feeling tears. Don't tell me what to feel. And then he says, he further said to them, okay, I'm going to tell you how to get there. I'm going to tell you how to unfeel what you feel. Go eat choice foods, drink sweet drinks, send portions to whoever has nothing prepared, for the day is holy to our Lord. Do not be sad, for your rejoicing in the Lord is the source of your strength. The Levites were quieting the people, saying, Hush, for the day is holy. Do not be sad. Then all the people went to eat and drink and send portions and make great merriment, for they understood the things they were told. What's How that? Profound. What, what, yeah, so what, what is he saying? What's the, what's the plan here? What's the project here? I think it's, avoid, it's almost avoiding the issue. You know, so there's a certain way in which, you know, it's like, you know, you're feeling really terrible. Um, here's the best way to do it. It's like, you know, I, I'm so sad. Well, let's go and uh, have a few drinks down at Joe's bar and let them, we'll forget everything. What, is that avoidance or yeah, is so that I, what? Is there a different- so I would argue, right, I, I can totally see why you would see avoidance there. But actually, I think it's a pathway towards healing because in those moments, we need each other. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, I, hate, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm right. thinking about you had to do Rosh Hashanah having right. just lost your mother. Right. What was that experience And, and like indeed, for you? you know, Elias is going to have to do life and, 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 and Sukkot. Sukkot, the Festival of Joy. He's like, bury his mother, Festival of Joy is upon mm-hmm. us. And we, we both had yes. funerals. You had a funeral right before Yom Kippur, had a funeral right after Yom Kippur for families who lost their loved ones in the midst of this season. And so... And what's possible in that? Yeah. Moment? So I think... Um, Aliza, uh, since you, so I want to come back to your question, but I, I want to ask, because you're, you're always very sensitive about, don't tell me to feel what I'm feeling or not, not feel what I'm feeling. What do you think is Ezra and Nehemiah's move here? When, what's the connection between eating good food, drinking good drinks, and feeling the way they want people to feel? I mean, I think that's at least a helpful, like, to me, it's a much more helpful to say, like, you know what? feel what you're feeling, we're going to go, we're going to have some good food, we're going to do some stuff, we'll see if that changes for you. That's not what, they, you know, they, they say, like, don't cry, like, don't feel your feelings, and I'm going to show you this path. Um, I think it's, I, I do think it's helpful, right, like, when you're really in a down, dark place, and I'm just, like, trying to think about, like, the times in my life where I've been in really dark places, 
what you're wearing and what you're eating and where you're going that does actually make a difference. And like, right. you don't have to decide like I'm not gonna feel what I'm feeling, but you can just decide like I'm gonna go be around happy, cute little children. I am gonna just go to the zoo, or I'm just gonna go, you know, I'm I'm gonna go to the gym. I'm gonna like whatever your thing is that makes you feel happy. Yeah, I, I yes, I, you know, and and your appearance and how you roll and how you present, you know, the externals reinforces the internals and can actually also lift up the internals. I remember this is just like a classic story from my family where my sister-in-law was 33, uh, Brenda. She was in a terrible accident. She's been in a wheelchair ever since in, in Tahiti. And one morning my brother, you know, came to see her in the hospital and he hadn't shaved and he hadn't showered and he looked like hell and he felt like hell. And he was dressed in, you know, yesterday's clothing. And my sister-in-law from her hospital bed said, Mark, no, go back and shave and go back and shower and go back and get dressed and then see me after that. You know, you have to, you know, you have to, right? So like eating and drinking and presenting and dressing, all of that uh, kind of creates an energy field and an energy flow. Mm -hmm. And so I think part of that is, is that how does this intersect? You know, Michelle, you're, you're going to be going to Israel this year and you're taking, you know, teenagers to Israel. You know, they're going to be going on college campuses, and oh my God, what a complicated space, what a complicated project you're running to try to get our 12th graders to think about Israel. I mean, Israel was uber complicated before the cold civil war. Now Israel is complicated for all the reasons it's been, plus the uber civil, the cold civil war. Um, how do you think about um, this advice from Ezra and Nehemiah about externals, eating, drinking, dressing? as it affects internal feelings? And how does, that, what, how does all that intersect with your 12th grade project? Uh, to me, it's less about the eating, drinking, and dressing, and more about the seeing each other and engaging each other in a community together in a space. Like, when you have to dress and eat and, and drink, they're, they're doing that in a community. And their community is directed towards something positive, towards building something. And so for me, I would say to engage our teens in the endeavor of connecting with our community in Israel in a way in which they see opportunities for um, maybe a shift of perspective from what you can get from here in Newton and a shift of perspective that they're going to be able to bring home. Like, right. I, I hope that we do for them what the Levites are are able to do, which yeah. is to say, there's a bigger picture here. You're seeing an end. This may be a beginning. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And there's, I think, there's a halachic principle at stake, and and I'm wondering how this applies to you. And I'll, I'll share how it applies to me, but I think it's also in Nehemiah. It's mitoch shalolishma bolishma, which is do something. Uh, and at first, you're not feeling it, but once you do it, you feel it. So don't feel it and do it. Don't feel it and do it. To the contrary, do it, and then you'll feel it. So this is the case, like, if you've ever gone to a wedding of somebody else when you yourself are sad, and, like, I'm not in the mood, I'm not in a place, I don't, you know, like, so you go, and at first, you're trying to win the Meryl Streep Award, <laughs> that, you know, you're smiling, and you're present, and you're radiant, but inside, you're dying, or inside, you're broken, or inside, you're having a hard day. And you go, and then, you know, you start talking to people. You see people. 
and then you start having conversations, and then the people kind of lift you up, and then you have a, you know, a drink, and you have some food, and that kind of lifts you up, and then they start dancing, and then you join the dance line, and that lifts you up, and you didn't go to the wedding originally with joy in your heart, but as a result of seeing people, and eating food, and drinking a glass of wine, and then dancing, before you know it, you're in the mood. Uh, you're in it. Do it, and then feel it. I think that's part of, 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 of Nehemiah's teaching here. How, how do you see those principles applying to your times when you have to keep pessimism at bay? Well, one of the things I'm thinking about also, what you just explained, um, is the, the, uh, the possibility that you're, that you're joyous in that moment and can fall back into the, into the pessimism. So um, this is, I think, this is um, why I think Sukkot is eight days. Um, because it's not just like you know one day, but if you continually do it, you can't you know you, can't, you have to get dressed and you know take a shower and shave and and all of that, and not just do it one day, but do it continually. So even when things are difficult, um, and you ha- you have to put one foot in front of the other and get up and start doing it, and that could will will help to reverse. The, um, that's what, like what I said earlier, that pessimism is a stepping stone, or can be a stepping stone Thank towards you. optimism. Okay. I want to, uh, Chef, so we've talked about Hagar Nishmael at the well, and how, you know, you work your way through feelings, and then you kind of open your eyes, and, and after you work your way through feelings, you can see beginnings of solutions. Um, uh, I remember once uh, I was at the funeral for uh, uh, Rick Park, uh, who was a young man... Um, who died young. Evie Park was his wife, and she was a teacher at Schechter, and Carl Perkins was doing the funeral at Temple Aliyah years ago. It was, in the, it was in the late 90s. And I'll never forget what Carl said about Rick Park, who died of cancer as a young man, that every time he got a grim diagnosis, he didn't say, why me? He said, what now? What next? And there's the, kind of that energy of how do I how do I look for the well? How do I look for the water? After I process the feelings. And then we get the, the energy from Nehemiah about you got to do it and then feel it. And the it and do it, it could be eating and drinking and dressing. It could be people. It could be talking. But do something, and that can change your inner life. We have one-third anti-pessimism text, which is um, Jeremiah, who has, oddly enough, uh, two, two enemies um, and uh, two reasons to despair. One is the king of uh, Judah has thrown him in jail for sedition, um, or disloyalty, or treason. And the second, the, the Babylonians are coming. And uh, um, I'm just going to read this real quick, and I'm asking, asking you guys, what does this bring to the party of anti-pessimism? What, is this, what m- new move or new handle does this give us? So Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, the son of your uncle Shalom, will come to you and say, Buy my land in Anatot, for you are next in succession to redeem it by purchase. And just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the prison compound, the guy's in jail, um, and said to me, Please buy my land in Anatot in the territory of Benjamin, for the right of succession is yours, and you have the duty of redemption. Buy it. So I bought the land in Anatot from my cousin Hanamel. I weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I wrote a deed, sealed it, had it witnessed. I weighed out the silver on a balance. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed text, and the open one according to the rule of law, and gave the deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Mashiach, in the presence of my kinsman Hanamel, etc., and all the Judeans who were sitting in the prison compound and in their presence, I charged Baruch as follows. 
Thus said the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these documents, this deed of purchase, the seal text of the open one, and put them into an earthen jar so that they may last a long time. For thus said the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses, fields, and vineyards shall once again be purchased in this land. So, at, so it's a double move. He's in jail, and literally you can hear the steeds and the horses of the Babylonian army coming, and buy this land, put it in an earthen jar, because this is not for today, this is not for tomorrow, this is going to be for 70 years from now. But 70 years from now, you've got deed to this real estate. And then at the very end, I just want to, you know, he, uh, Jeremiah talks about how um, here are the, the, the that it's, it's really bad right now. I mean, it's really bad right now. Uh, therefore, you have caused all this misfortune to befall them, the Judeans. Here are the siege mounds, which I some kind of a, a siege, race against the city to storm it. And the city, because of the sword and the famine and the pestilence, is at the mercy of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, who are attacking it. What you threatened has come to pass, yet you, Lord God, said to me, buy the land for money and call it, call in witnesses, when the city is at the mercy of the Chaldeans. And then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh, is anything too wondrous for me. So talk about creative tension. You have a city under siege. You have a city where people are dying of hunger, dying of famine, dying of pestilence. I mean, like, through hunger and COVID and all other bad things happening, right? And put the protagonist in jail and then buy a piece of real estate and put it in an earthen jar for 70 years from now. And why am I doing this? Because there is such a thing as God and nothing is too wondrous for God. So that's the story. What's the lesson from this fabulous text? It's one of my favorite texts of our tradition. Um, I believe strongly that this is actually at the core narrative of the Torah as well. You know, those 400 years when our ancestors are in slavery and eventually they get out. I mean, our core narrative is it might not be you, it might not be now, but the story will not always be this story. A different story is already in process. The, so are you saying, Michelle, if I hear you correctly, that it's, it's the long view? This is the long view? It's, you're something, you're part of something bigger than, than you. Than you. And you have a stake in this world that lasts beyond you. Oh, my God, Michelle Robinson. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, on Yom Kippur, uh, in the Machzor Lev Shalem, when we begin Yiskor, there is this reading that we, at least Elise and I, did in our service, which is, um, you know, that your ideals are going to live on even if, even, basically, even if you're dead. Even if you're dead, your ideals are going to live on. Your ideals are going to live on even if you're no longer there to see it, basically. And, and, and that's how it ends. It ends with that note. Um, is that what you're saying? It's a, it's, it's a piece of what I'm saying, absolutely. Right. And also, in his testimony of God, is anything too wondrous for me? You, you don't know when you're going to be in the moment, when you're going to be in the generation. You don't know that it's only the long view. Because if you have faith, you believe that it is possible for wonders to happen at any time. For miracles, how many people have we sat by bedsides and said, you know, even at this moment, we pray for miracles? 
So, Michelle, can I just push back ever so gently? Um, <laughs> you mentioned um, the, the Exodus narrative, um, and what's always troubling about that is, yes, that 400 years later, or 430 years later, there's different numbers, but hundreds of years later, so leave it that way, there's a generation that gets freed. But if you're born and live and die as a slave, that feels to me kind of cold comfort. So, uh, I mean, I guess, how do you deal with that fact? Like the the long-run view kind of vindicates God, right? But you're kind of screwed if you're in the unlucky part of the chain. And what do you do with that? I, I think what you do with that is you have love and hope and faith for the future. I don't know, as a parent, the moment you become a parent, the world is not about you anymore. And it is enough. Whatever I have to suffer, if my children have the possibility of a better path, that's all I need in life. That's all. <laughs> that's everything for me. And I think our story, I mean, there's such a beautiful story that Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs tells about the Rebbe, who, uh, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, who once got a letter from uh, somebody who had said, I can't pray, I can't, I can't um, engage with my faith, I don't see God. I, I, and, and the Rebbe sent it back circled with only one word circled throughout the letter, I. And he said, there's, like, there's your problem right there. Because you're trying to find faith, you're trying to find God, and you are doing it with I. And you don't lead with I. You lead with a sense that you're part of something bigger than yourself. You're part of a community that transcends whatever's happening to you, even if it is 400 years. Yeah, I'm, I'm with Wesso on this. I mean, the, the, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the idea is that, yes, that's so wonderful so what to think about. But then, you know, you, as you say, you're born and you, you live a slave and you die. Um, how is it you can have... How is it helpful that generations later yes, they're at the impulse? I don't know. How is it helpful that migrants are at the border right now in this minute with their children trying to give their children a different right. future even and when they know they're not going to make it? It's a Jewish story. How many of our ancestors, I mean, our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents came to this country and sold rags or some, some equivalent of selling rags so that our kids could go on to find schools and have the kinds of illustrious lives and careers that they've had. That's an American Jewish story. Um, but I think that's, I think this, the piece of pessimism here is like, you can be like the world is never gonna improve and everything is gonna continue to be broken. And I don't need to feel happy and clappy about it, but I do need to get on my feet and walk towards that border. I do need to get on my feet and I need to, you know, take out this rubble and build it back into a different place. I, I, I don't need, and I think that's an interesting piece of, of you know, where's the emotional reality of, of what's not pessimism? Mm. And I think, I, I'm not sure exactly where that is. I'm also thinking about, like, for my own life, um, the moments where things were really tough, I was pretty pessimistic. Like, and it, I don't know, did that harm my ability to get through that? I don't know. Like, um, was it pleasant? No. Was there a more pleasant way? Probably not. I, so like, I don't, I, I'm sitting here with a question of like, is it worth trying to avoid being pessimistic or should we be like engaging with it in a different way? So, well, that's, that's a perfect segue. So, so Danielle says, I don't do pessimism. And Shimon Peres says, you know, optimists and pessimists die the same. They just live different lives. Great quote. Um, and at the Shimon Peres Center, it's all over the place. Um, all sounds very lovely, and it all sounds like, hey, we should really work our way, try to work our way out of pessimism and, and internalize the lesson of these anti-pessimism texts. 
there's only one slight problem, and I want to go to there next and, and conclude with this, which is there is this thing in Judaism called prophecy. Yeah. And, and it's like a, you know, Torah, Navim, and Ketuvim, the middle leg of our stool, is for the most part pessimistic. Um, and they, they, they kind of own the pessimism, and they sit with the pessimism. So I want to just, um, and so I want to give you um, at home and my colleagues here an example of this. Uh, this is from the same, the same Jeremiah. And I picked it because Jeremiah buys the house while in prison. Um, but same Jeremiah does the following. This is the text for Tisha B'Av Day. I will make an end of them declares the Lord, no grapes left on the vine, no figs on the fig tree. The leaves are all withered. Whatever I have given them is gone, G-O-N-E, gone, I do spell. <laughs> Why are we sitting by? Let's just gather into the fortified cities and meet our doom there. For the Lord our God has doomed us. He's made us drink a bitter draft because we sinned against the Lord. We hoped for good fortune, but no happiness came. For a time of relief, but instead there is just terror. The snorting of their horses was heard from Dan at the loud neighing of their steeds. The whole land quaked. They came and devoured the land and what was in it, the towns and those who dwelt in them. By the way, He's just getting started. I just want to. I just want to end. It, I want to just end with this piece, which is, he then says, um, "Speak thus, says the Lord: the carcasses of men shall lie like dung upon the fields, like sheaves behind the reaper, with none to pick them up." So Jeremiah does pessimism. So my question is. A few questions, so much to talk about here. First, what does that add? That and the whole Nevi'im project, the whole prophecy, which is deeply saturated with pessimism, what does it add to the conversation? And for no extra charge, um, how do you square this Jeremiah, dungs and carcasses, and you know, you're going to just be dead and no one's going to care and the birds will pick upon you, um, with the Jeremiah who buys the house in prison and puts I, it in an earthenware jar? They're the same. And the reason I the reason I said if we go back to the end of Tisha B'Av, uh, the end of Eicha, Hashivene Oranai Lecha Ashuva. So there's even even in this such horrible dark moment when we know things cannot possibly be worse, um, there's still the possibility of um, of redemption. And again, mm. it's, it's what Michelle was saying earlier that that, that, that redemption is going to be generations later. And how do we live in that moment? But it's but uh, but the message I think is still there. You have to ask yourself the question, what is prophecy for, right? It, it, he's telling them these things, not just to say this is what's going to happen to you, but also to say perhaps, and many prophets say, perhaps there's still time for us to change and avoid that fate. Perhaps there's not. Maybe this is what is going to happen. In Jeremiah's case, he's literally living it, so he he knows that that's what's going on, but that this does not have to be our construct forever. We, we are here. I mean, I think it, it would be an absolute horror to say that it's not okay to ever 
look at the world and say there are awful things. I don't know that that's being pessimistic. I'd love to, I'd love to have a dictionary here and try to look up the definition of pessimism because my recollection is that pessimism is when you are negative without necessarily proof that there's a reason to be negative. He, he has a reason to be negative. And when you ask the question, why is he saying all of this? Why is he doing all of this? It is in service of, as Dan said, the, right. the hope that we could hear this and find a way to write a different story. Yeah, so Michelle, on that note, I mean, so Jeremiah has just hit us over the head with a two by four of uh, from beginning to end, ending with seemingly ending with the carcasses of men shall lie like dung upon the fields, but the Haftorah doesn't end Never. end there. Never. So just read the last the last thing on page fifteen, verse twenty two, and 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 uh, what does that add to the conversation? Thus said the Lord. Here you go. Thank you. All right. Thus said the Lord: Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom; let not the strong man glory in his strength; let not the rich man glory in his riches. But only in this should one glory: in his earnest devotion to me. For I, the Lord, act with kindness, justice, and equity in the world. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. And what does that add to the conversation? I, I, I think. I, I don't want to repeat myself, but pretty much what, what I just said. The story is bigger than you, right? right? You are and a bigger part, than now. And it's bigger than, than now. You, it's bigger, bigger than, than you. Now. It's bigger than now. It's bigger than what you have done or have been. There is an eternal truth. There's an eternal relationship. And ultimately, in service of that relationship, we have to find our path back to a place of goodness, righteousness, connection, writing a story of hope for our world because yeah. our story didn't end there in all those pages of Jeremiah. And in fact, our stories never end. There's always the next thing that is right. upon us which we can make something good out of. And what do you do, Michelle, with the fact, I mean, I think this is a standard teaching and I think it's true, that 100% of the biblical fa uh, prophets fail, like they're not listened to in their own time. Mm -hmm. um, and so here these, these purveyors, these merchants of sadness and doom and gloom are ignored, disdained, rejected, spurned, not heeded, ineffective. You have to say very ineffective. Um, what does that do to the analysis, the fact that they fail? Well, but I think that's such an interesting thing because I think if we say that prophets are, are, are peddling doom and gloom, I think that undersells. I think what they're trying to do is I think they're trying to get people to feel. I think they're trying to say, feel the brokenness that exists in the world. Because if you felt the brokenness that I experience, then you would have a different reaction and a different relationship to this world and you would do something differently. And what they fail to do is they fail to get people to join them in their feelings. Except when it's positive, right? Like everybody's ready to join a party, but very few people, you shared this that your, your father in love shared that um, when you laugh, everyone laughs with you. When you would cry, you cry alone. Everybody's excited to go to a party, but nobody wants to come join and like start sobbing with you. Like, that's not a thing people want to do. So what's interesting is that prophets all fail because they fail to get people to experience emotion in a real way and move from it. Yeah. And that's, I think, a skill that we have to practice. I, but think, what, yeah. I, think, I think also this, um, it's, it's true in modern times as well. We, we as humans don't want to hear the bad. 
we don't want to hear the bad. You know, um, tell me what's Dan, right. Dan, I mean, Dan Quayle predicted right. what, what's happening now, and no one wants to listen to him. Um, right. You know, so it's 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 the same thing. Every so, time. Uh, but Dan, on that note, he, I mean, so I said what is commonly said, which is 100% of biblical prophets fail. You know, with the sole exception of Jonah that we read on Yom Kippur, but we all know that. Well, then for, he's for, depressed that he right. Well, he's depressed. <laughs> that's right. Jonah's a special case. Um, but so they fail. But the flip is that we still read their words thousands of years later. So did they really fail? Kind of, they failed at their time, but people, humans of soulfulness, are still reading, engaging, being challenged by their words. They're, they're, we walk with them through our most intense life moments, our most soulful moments, our most spiritual moments, our most awake and open moments. We're still listening to, wrestling with the prophets. So, do they really fail? They name something that is real. And they tell you that this, this indeed happens. I'm calling it out, and it can happen to you. But there's, there's no prophet that we read without a but. And even right. when we have those, uh, you know, those haftarot, those terrible haftarot, where, before Tisha B'Av. right before Tisha B'Av, when they're catastrophic, they come with the haftarot afterwards of consolation. Right. Right. Always the work of a prophet is not just to call it how it is, but to dream of how it can be. So I want to bring this to a close. I want to come back to our orienting question. You, dear friend who is watching this online, you, dear colleague, that is here in the Gantt Chapel now, uh, you have a deep fear in your heart. I'm worrying about the democracy of our country. I'm worrying about will Israeli society hold. I'm worrying about my adult child who's struggling. I'm worried about my loved one who's sick. I'm worried about my mental health. There's no end of things that I'm worrying about. And, and I could wake up and like the character from Peanuts, have a cloud in my sky, and I could be pessimistic. And now I have the very uh, uplifting Torah of Daniel Hartman, who's going, by the way, if you listen to his podcast, he goes to these demonstrations week after week after week. He never misses it. Uh, and he's not a demonstration person, but he goes. Um, and he says, I don't do pessimism. And here's the closing question I want to ask you, kind of a two-parter. Do you agree? Would you, are you with Daniel? I don't do pessimism. That's part one, or not. And part two is, what do these texts, the text from Hagar, the text from Jeremiah in jail buying an earthenware, the text from Nehemiah saying to people who are crying, don't cry, and saying to people who are mourning, don't mourn, and then the text from Jeremiah about the end is here, there's no grapes left in the vineyard. We're screwed. Um, how do you put all that together on the basic question of, of, uh, of the hour do I do pessimism? Do I not do pessimism? Does it have a legit place in my life? Does it have a time? Like Kohelet says, there's a time and place for everything under the sun. Is there a time and place for pessimism too? Eliza. <laughs> so I feel like I want, I want to be like, I know I don't do pessimism, but I do pessimism. I'm like a really, I, I'm a profoundly optimistic person, but when I'm down, I am profoundly down and I, I get deep into that pessimism. Um, and I think for me, um, it's a really interesting place because the wisdom of my tradition, like when I'm in that deep pessimistic place, you, there's no touching me with any, like any of this will not touch me. Um, it's just a time thing. But um, what, what gets you out of it? Time. Time and, and uh, you know, when situations change, I remember like 
it's like such an interesting thing, like being in this high holiday season. I was revisiting last year at high holidays and right before high holidays, like right around Tisha B'Av, I was saying to Solomon, we're never getting pregnant. Nothing is ever changing. Or we're just always going to be miserable. We're always going to be upset. And um, I, I didn't get out of that. Like literally, we did the transfer and I was like, we're never getting, like nothing's ever changing. So it was just like circumstances changed and my emotions followed. And so I think... I, I see the way that our tradition both encourages optimism and also says when you lose the ability to be pessimistic, then you actually lose the ability to change. And so I think what I take from these texts is the importance of honoring what is, of really feeling deeply your feelings and not allowing that to stop you. I think that the problem with feeling like, there's no problem with feeling what you're doing, but what is a problem is when you get inertia from it. And so how do you feel what you feel and keep moving? Mm. Mr. Nesson. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I'm not really sure. I, I, what, what I believe is that, um, that these texts show us that we are an eternally optimistic people, but moments of pessimism do exist. And I think pessimism is part of the reality of the human condition, um, but it's also something that we can always move beyond and our tradition teaches us that yes we like like Jeremiah says we can we can move beyond this we we need to buy the land we need to plant the tree that 70 years from now is going to be um uh, going to be blooming uh, even though we are in ourselves at the moment um in in the deepest darkest place I love the moment on Yom Kippur when we read Isaiah saying, God doesn't want you to fast. This is, this is not the fast that God wants. And then we fast anyway. To me, that's, that's all of it. It's, it's about trying to fill those spaces when we encounter the reality of our world and we have that question, will we go pessimistic or will we go optimistic in face of what we're seeing and inviting God into that space? Mm. So I really, really wrestle with this question. The reason I just picked up immediately on Daniel saying I don't do pessimism is that I frequently do pessimism. I frequently live pessimism. I frequently am pessimistic. Um, it's an inside joke in my family. Um, my, and you guys know this because we've worked together for 100 years. My favorite weather is rain. My favorite weather is rain. Like a sunny day, I'm not that interested in. A sunny day is okay. My, like the, the, the turbulent, rainy, windy days that we've had leading up to Rosh Hashanah, etc. last week, a lot of rain, I love that. And I think the reason I love that, my family thinks that I love that because it reflects a dark soul. And I think I love that because I think life is about figuring out how to make meaning in the rain. Mm. Um, and so for me, I love, Dan I mean, I love Daniel. He's, he's like my rabbi, and I love that idea of I don't do pessimism. But for me personally, I can't get there because I, that's who I am. I am pessimistic. It's about how do, I, how do I live a good day in the rain? It is frequently raining. It is always raining. You know, and the, the places that I love most are like deeply broken. I think our country has never been more broken. I love America. I am deeply fearful and deeply pessimistic about 2024. I'm deeply anxious. Whatever your politics are, there's just, it's a civil war that didn't end. And the other place I love deeply is Israel. And everybody says this is not breaking any new ground. It's the worst domestic crisis that Israel's had in 75 years. So, so that's rain. That's rain. 
and our move. And for me, the weight of all these great texts is, okay, it's raining. Don't be afraid of the rain. Don't be afraid of the rain. Instead, figure out how to live and make meaning and make warmth and make coziness and make joy and make blessing in the rain because it is always raining. Shabbat shalom. Chag Sameach. Let's go. Thank you.